1976, the District of Columbia passed a law that banned possession of handguns and required people who owned firearms to keep them disassembled or locked up. In 2008, however, in District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court struck down that ban and recognized the individual's right to possess guns for personal protection. Was this a clear victory for conservatives and gun rights advocates? For in spite of the ruling, D.C. versus Heller preserved many gun control laws. Hi, I'm Valerie Jackson, and today we're going between the lines with Adam Winkler, author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Adam Winkler is one of the leading constitutional law experts in the country. He's professor of constitutional law at the University of California in L.A., and he's been featured on CNN and in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the New Republic. He's also a columnist for the Daily Beast. Welcome, Adam Winkler. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, as you know, the interpretation of the Second Amendment has been debated for decades as to whether the right to bear arms was meant to apply exclusively to the militia or to individual rights to possess arms. You contend that the amendment is rather ambiguous. Too many commas, you've said. Why do you say that? Well, the Second Amendment to the Constitution says, well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. It's almost as if James Madison, the author of the Second Amendment, had just discovered the comma <laughs> and wanted to use it as many times as possible. And the contending t- sides in the gun debate have argued uh, – focused on different parts of the Second Amendment. Uh, some in the gun rights community focus on the second part. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, while in the gun control community, focus on the first part, a well-regulated militia. Um, but uh, the truth is, is the right to bear arms is one of our oldest, most established constitutional rights. In some ways, regardless of the Second Amendment, most states uh, protect the right of individuals to have guns for personal protection in their own state constitutions. Mm-hmm. And one thing I discovered in writing Gunfight, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was the one of the jewels of the Constitution added after the Civil War to guarantee the freedmen their constitutional rights, was designed also to protect the freedmen's right to keep and bear arms against marauding racists like the KKK. Well, let's take a look at what I call the bizarre history that that brought us to uh, D.C. versus Heller, Uh, starting with the founding fathers. um, Why was the Second Amendment even necessary if you said, as you indicated, most of the states had their own Bill of Rights, if you will, that allowed it? Well, the framers were very concerned with standing armies. Their experience as Englishmen were that the crown often used its military force to go out and disarm political dissenters. This happened in the 1680s with James II and then was happening again in the 1770s with George III when he was trying to disarm the colonists, especially those in Massachusetts and in Boston, the most rebellious colony. And the framers were fearful when they set the constitution. They didn't know we'd have 250 years of a constitutional uh, <laughs> a democracy. They were fearful that the president that they were creating would run roughshod over the liberties of the people as well. They didn't believe in a standing army that he could use to run roughshod. So they thought instead that national defense would rely on the citizens' militia. We, the people, when called out to serve, would go out, get our guns from home, and be ready to fight in an instant. Hence the famous Minutemen of revolutionary fame. Um, So they believed in civilian gun ownership as key to uh, national defense. But there had to be some kind of organization or, or coordination, if you will, 
That's so, right. That's the well-regulated militia part. Um, the founding fathers believed in civilian gun ownership, but they also believed in gun control, and they adopted numerous laws to restrict access to guns, who could have them, uh, but also put, imposed demanding requirements on gun owners through the militia laws um, that required people to show up at mandatory musters with their guns in hand when they would be inspected and registered on state rolls so the government knew where those guns were. Uh, and trained as well so that they could be an effective fighting force. It turns out that the militias were not very effective fighting forces. Uh, and by uh, about 1820, the militias uh, were had proven not to be useful enough. Well, the, the guns, though, even at that time were barred um, to some people uh, and not just uh, blacks and minorities. Uh, your book reveals that even in Maryland, Catholics at one time weren't allowed to have guns. That's right. And uh, Catholics were barred at one point. But also loyalists. You know, we think back at the revolutionary time and think, oh, everyone must have supported the revolution. But we know from our own experience as Americans that we can't agree on anything. <laughs> and the same was true in the revolutionary era. Historians estimate that about 40 percent of yeah. the population were loyalists, believed that taking on the greatest military power in the world in England at the time was a terrible mistake for 13 divided colonies who couldn't organize themselves. And if you refused to swear an oath of loyalty to the revolution, you would be disarmed as well. And those were law-abiding people. We're not talking about people who were fighting for the English. We're just talking about people who are exercising their freedom of conscience. Well, talking about law-abiding people, let's move to the wild, wild west, where most of us have an image of a lack of law, especially with respect to guns. But in fact, there were some very strict gun control laws back in those days. Well, we all know the image, uh, the gunslinger walking through town. He's got two six-shooters on each hip. He's got a rifle in his hand, maybe a Derringer hidden in his <laughs> pant leg. I mean, it's amazing he has so many guns. But uh, one of the remarkable things I discovered in writing Gunfight uh, is that image couldn't be more wrong. It turns out that most of the towns in the Wild West, places like Tombstone, Dodge City, um, Deadwood, South Dakota, they had the most restrictive gun laws in the nation. Everyone out in the West had guns, especially out in the untamed wilderness where there was no law. But when you came into town where the civilized people lived, you had to check your guns the way you'd check your overcoat at a restaurant in Boston in the winter. Um, and you left your gun with the sheriff. I have a photograph in the book of Dodge City taken during the height of the Wild West period. And it's remarkable. It looks exactly like what you'd expect to find in Dodge City, a wide, dusty road, brick and clapboard building, horse tie in front of the saloon. The thing you're not expecting to see is the billboard in the middle of the road that says the carrying of firearms strictly prohibited. But, you know, these Wild West towns, they wanted to become bigger towns filled with civilized people. They wanted to attract investors and good families. And you're not going to do that if guns are ablaze night and day. Mm. Let's, let's hit on the Civil War. How, how was that um, instrumental in, in the whole gun uh, movement? This was a really important time for the development of gun rights and gun control in America. All throughout the South – before the Civil War, blacks were never allowed to own guns. Uh, and then what happens during the Civil War is many blacks uh, in the South get their hands on guns for the very first time. Some serve in black units of the Union mm -hmm. Army. The Union Army can't afford to pay its soldiers when the war ends, so it allows its soldiers to take the guns home with them, and they'll deduct that pay from back pay that's owed. Uh, and then others buy firearms on the open market, which is literally flooded with hundreds of thousands of guns that had been produced for the war and no longer were necessary. So African-Americans uh, get guns for the first time. This occasions a real backlash among white racists who pass laws like the Black Codes, mm -hmm. specifically barring blacks from owning guns. But laws on the books aren't self-enforcing. Right. You've got to actually enforce the law somehow. And they started to form – white racists began to form bands of people that would go out at night in large posses in disguise 
to go out and terrorize the black community and take away those guns. Sounds well, familiar. Yeah, and this is the birth of the KKK, yes, yes. Uh, which begins after the Civil War with gun control at the very top of its agenda. White racists knew that if blacks had guns, they could fight back, and they wanted to prevent that. So the KKK was originally uh, to uh, started to disarm the blacks after the Civil War. Absolutely, absolutely. Hmm. And this also led to its own kind of backlash, and it was radical Republicans and reformers in Congress pushed for the adoption of constitutional amendments to protect the freedmen's rights, not just their right to bear arms, but their right to free speech and the mm-hmm. right to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures. But they specifically said by name many times, the drafters of the 14th Amendment, we want to protect the freedmen. Uh, and their right to have guns for personal protection against marauding racists. What about the the, the 20s and the 30s when we had, you know, prohibition and, uh, oh, so many um, gangsters and the mafia and whatnot? Um, Did that have an impact on on gun control? Absolutely. The prohibition-era laws that banned alcohol led to a huge increase in criminal violence as gangs uh, and mobs tried to feed America's desire for alcohol. Uh, and they took to in using this new developed weapon, the Tommy machine gun, which was the first machine gun that you could hold in your hand and carry con- comfortably, uh, and used this in this crime wave that dis- was destroying cities like Chicago. This led um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt to push for the first federal gun control laws. Uh, and uh, What was that? Was that the National Firearms Act or the did National, it come later? The Fa- okay. National Firearms Act of 1934, mm-hmm. which heavily restricted access to machine guns and other kinds of gangster weapons. And this was – we think of Franklin Roosevelt uh, for the New Deal. Right. And the New Deal, the way we can – he can expand government to solve society's problems. But one thing that we don't often talk about, there was a New Deal for guns as well. And the New Deal uh, was to create federal gun control laws – that would stop criminals from having access to the most dangerous weapons. One of the best parts about that story, though, is the National Firearms Act, is that the president of the NRA, Carl Frederick at the time, was asked to testify in Congress about the constitutionality of the National Firearms Act. And his answer from the perspective of today is nothing short of astounding. He said, well, I had never given it any study from that point of view. So he hadn't even thought about the Second Amendment. No. And he had, turns out he had written about the Second Amendment mm-hmm. elsewhere, and he said mm-hmm. specifically that the protection for gun rights lies in intelligent legislative action, not in the Constitution. Right, right. You mentioned the federal involvement, and uh, I think you demonstrated that in the story of Bonnie and Clyde because they kept going across state lines, and that was a problem. One of the reasons why we needed more federal crime control, including gun control, was that desperados like Bonnie and Clyde were able to take advantage of this newly developed interstate highway system to escape, to basically rob them and run. They would have a holdup and then they would escape in their vehicles uh, on the newly paved roads of America. And the police were really had no chance because they didn't have radios in their car. They couldn't radio ahead. There was no way for them to coordinate their activities. Uh, and their jurisdiction stopped at state lines. So Bonnie and Clyde would commit a robbery and get us to the border as fast as they could and, and escape. Mm-hmm. So you needed the federal government to step in and yeah. close these loopholes yeah. that were created by the federal system when you had such ease of transportation. Now, the Black Panthers, interesting enough, in the book, uh, you talk about played a very vital role um, in, in gun control laws. Talk about that a moment, please. 
One of the most remarkable incidents in America's entire history with guns was a day in May 1967 when 30 Black Panthers came to the California State Capitol armed with loaded rifles, pistols, and shotguns. But not in a not in a not in a hostile or or a intimidating manner, right? They were not there to commit violence. Right. They were there just as a political protest. But they walked in with loaded guns into the state capitol. There was no metal detectors outside to stop them. And they walked into the legislative chamber while it was in session with the lawmakers. And, yeah, they weren't there to commit violence, but they were there to protest a proposed gun control law that was being enacted in California, being pushed, ironically, by conservative Republicans. Like Ronald Reagan? Like Ronald Reagan wanted to take the guns out of the hands of the Black Panthers that were causing trouble for the Oakland police back in those days. But it was legal, though, for them to walk into or anywhere in public, for that matter, with a, with a gun, right, as long as it wasn't pointed at someone. Is that correct? Huey Newton, one of the two founders with Bobby Seale of the Black Panthers, had gone to law school, uh, had not finished, but he had gone to law school and he had studied the gun laws and learned that you could carry a loaded firearm as long as you displayed it openly and you did not carry it in a threatening manner. In other words, it had to be pointed to the sky or pointed towards the ground, but you could carry this. And so they walked into the legislative chamber and it was all entirely legal. So are you saying then that we may not have even had uh, a modern gun uh, movement had it not been for the Panthers? Well, the laws that were adopted to stop the Black Panthers and other laws uh, right around that same period, including the Gun Control Act of 1968, which even gun control supporters at the time said was not so much to control guns as to control blacks, especially blacks committing crimes in urban areas. Remember, 1967 had the worst race riots in American history in Detroit and Newark, virtually destroyed these cities. And snipers shot at National Guardsmen when they came. A federal report said part of the blame for the riots was easy access of guns mm. in these racial minority communities. And so these laws were designed to restrict access to guns by urban, black, left-leaning radicals, but yet sparked a backlash among white rural conservatives who were convinced that the government was coming to get their guns next. Is this why you say race and racism um, has tainted gun control laws? It's an uncomfortable part of our history, but race and gun control have been tied together since the founding. Um, part of the way in which racial subordination was maintained was by denying racial minorities access to guns. The founding fathers had racially discriminatory gun laws. Um, uh, the KKK and others formed with gun control as part of the agenda. And it continued into the 1960s, I think, with laws that were in part at least somewhat motivated by racial concerns. I don't think that means that all gun control is racist and that we can't have good gun control laws. I favor a number of different kinds of gun control laws. But I think it's kind of like voting rights or property rights or marriage law in America. We should always be cognizant of the racial history of these things so that we're careful we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. One of the most interesting um, parts of the book to me was the discussion of the NRA, um, beginning with the original mission of the NRA and how it has morphed over the years, if you will. Talk about why it was originally established. So the NRA was formed right after the Civil War by two former Union soldiers who were convinced that part of the reason why the war had gone on so long, despite the fact that the South was outmanned and the North had far greater resources, was because of the relatively poor marksmanship of Union soldiers as compared to Confederate soldiers. And so they wanted to enhance marksmanship training for the American military in the future so we could be a capable fighting force. The Second Amendment and gun control was uh, as far from their minds as, they, as you could imagine. 
In fact, the 1920s and 1930s, the NRA was supporting gun control laws, drafting and promoting in state after state restrictive laws on, for instance, concealed carry of Mm -hmm. firearms, laws that the NRA today tries to overturn. And what happened was in the 1970s, the NRA had a coup where a group of dissident hardliners took over the organization in a dramatic middle-of-the-night meeting of the members, uh, and they manipulated the bylaws to oust the old board and install a completely new board that was really committed to the idea that guns were not about hunting but about personal self-defense. Which is kind of what the NRA had, had gone back into in the in the 60s uh, uh, about the mission of this is about marksmanship and so forth. And we're really kind of backing off of the whole um, That's gun right. control issue, wasn't it? Maxwell Rich, who was the head of the NRA in the late 60s, early 1970s, uh, adopted a plan to retreat from political lobbying, close down the Washington <coughs> headquarters, move to Colorado Springs, and focus on outdoors activities. But this really upset this group of dissident hardliners who, frankly, thought guns weren't about hunting. They were about self-defense. Remember the 1960s and early 1970s, very starkly rising crime rates. People were really fearing that they needed firearms for personal protection. This group of dissident hardliners takes over the NRA and really leads it into becoming the political powerhouse that it is today. Well, I'm talking with Adam Winkler, author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. So let's talk about the decision, District of Columbia versus Heller. Um, you know, there were a lot of people, when even when this uh, ban was instituted in 76, a lot of people figured that, you know, it wouldn't be successful. Um, so why did D.C. pass such a law? In fact, um, one of the councilmen at the time, Marion Barry, who would go on to uh, quite uh, quite a career in Washington politics, uh, he said at the time that what we are doing today will not take one gun out of the hands of one criminal. And he was a supporter of the law. He was voting for it. The reason why they passed the law, even though they knew it wouldn't have much of an effect on gun violence, uh, an accurate prediction, by the way, uh, in the 1980s when I lived in Washington, D.C., it was known as the murder capital of the United States. Uh, But they passed the law because they were hoping to start a nationwide trend that other cities would give up their guns too and soon maybe the states would give up their guns and soon we'd have a world in which uh, there aren't any civilian guns or very few civilian guns anymore. It was a very idealistic hope, uh, one that's really proven not to be uh, uh, very likely or very promising. For that matter, with with the decision in that that case, it it made it um, constitutionally impossible now it's constitutionally impossible. Yeah. Well, it really was – it was often described as a ban on handguns. Mm-hmm. And shorthand, that's what it was. But it was actually more than that. It also had provisions that said if you had a long gun, you couldn't use it for self-defense. So you had, it had to be locked or assembled and you could only unlock it and assemble it for specified recreational purposes under the statute. And recreational purposes did not include personal self-defense. So if somebody was breaking into your house – you could take your gun and beat them over the head with it, but you couldn't shoot them with it. So it really was the most uh, – uh, it was the most restrictive gun law in the country, basically outlawing the use of guns uh, for self-defense. So who is Heller in the, uh, in the uh, name of the case? Well, Heller was one of several original plaintiffs recruited by these three libertarian lawyers. The case was brought by these three libertarian lawyers who had very little experience in the Supreme Court. In fact, the main lawyer had never argued a case in the Supreme Court. That was um, Alan Gura. Alan Gura. These, uh, they, they modeled their lawsuit after the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, strategic civil rights litigation designed to expand people's constitutional rights. And so they went out. They didn't want criminals or crackheads, people who were caught with some criminal activity with a gun. That's not the guy who you want 
defending the Second Amendment at the United States Supreme right. Court. They went and recruited a bunch of law-abiding people, some of whom a pacifist would have given guns to given their circumstances in bad drug communities and having been threatened personally. Uh, and Heller was one of these uh, plaintiffs who uh, was dis- was recruited specifically because they'd be good strategic in front of the media kind of plaintiff. Heller was the only one a of gun, the plaintiffs who had gone out and tried to register a gun, even though he knew he wouldn't be yeah. able to. Yeah. But that futile act turned out to be essential for him to stay right. in the case, and then he becomes the face of the case. Let's talk a minute about that rookie lawyer who led the uh, the argument for uh, D.C. versus um, Heller. Well, Alan Gurr was a young libertarian lawyer who believed in the cause of gun rights. Uh, he was not a gun rights advocate, didn't have any affiliation with the NRA. And he was given the case in part because he was a real believer and he was willing to work for what uh, one of the other lawyers in the case called subsistence wages, basically mm-hmm. work for nothing. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later when the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, um, there was pressure on the other lawyers to get rid of Alan Gura and bring in a Supreme Court heavyweight, a guy like a Ted Olson or someone who had argued many cases before the Supreme Court. But the uh, the lawyer who was financing the case said, you know what? I gave this case to Alan Gura and he worked on it for all these years for almost nothing. I'm not going to take it away from him. But it left Alan Gura defending the gun rights movement um, against the wishes of the NRA. Part of the story is that the NRA yes. fought tooth and nail to what? keep this case yeah. from going. Well, the NRA's position at the time was that we think we could lose and we don't want to lose and have our view of the Second Amendment rejected by the Supreme Court, especially this Supreme Court that's got a conservative majority. So when you say – if they so if they lost then what would that take away from them that was it about what their whole premise of well they're going to come and take away your guns i think that you know the nra is a political powerhouse they know they're winning in legislatures all across the country so they're not so fearful that the court's going to say there's no right to bear arms and what that would mean but they certainly didn't want the supreme court to reject their view of the second amendment that didn't benefit them the lawyers like alan gura were convinced that the nra was also afraid of something else Ironically, they might have been afraid of winning, that the NRA thrives on crisis-driven fundraising, warning warning gun owners that the government's coming to take your guns and you better contribute now. Otherwise, your right to bear arms would be nothing but a distant memory. What would happen to that fundraising machine if the Supreme Court said your right to bear arms is secure and government could never come take all your guns? Well, isn't that basically what they did say? And they, and, and they did say that, exactly. And so – Alan Gura scores a remarkable victory for the gun rights movement, even though he's being opposed by the NRA and the leaders of the modern gun rights movement. Um, and indeed, not only is he up against the NRA, mm-hmm. ironically, but he's up against the District of Columbia, which hires one of the top Supreme Court advocates in the nation, a guy named Walter Dellinger, uh, former mm-hmm. Solicitor General of the United States, to come and argue their case. Even the Bush administration in many ways was against their case and and sent their best lawyer to argue against Alan Gura as well. So the fact that he scored this remarkable victory was really uh, – it's sort of a David versus Goliath story mm-hmm. in part. One of the surprising things to me was how Justice Antony Scalia interjected himself into the argument on Guerra's behalf, I mean, literally almost correcting his answers at times. Was that appropriate? Well, that is very commonplace in the Supreme oh, Court. It is? When we see these kinds of oral arguments, we think that the justices are just trying to get answers from the lawyers. But often they're arguing among themselves. The justices hadn't talked about the cases before they have that oral argument. So what happens is often, and Scalia is a master of this, he doesn't ask questions so much to get answers, but to form and shape the argument so he can persuade the other justices about how to vote. And so 
I think in this case, Alan Gura being a Supreme Court rookie and Justice Scalia being a big supporter of the idea that the Second Amendment protects the right to bear arms, Justice Scalia was not willing to leave the fate of the Second Amendment to a Supreme Court rookie. And so he interjected and stepped in and corrected his answers and provided him answers when he needed to. It wasn't appropriate. It's all done in open court and everyone can see what's happening. But I think it's really in part designed because Scalia is worried about how he's going to get a majority of justices. Uh, and Alan Gura is just the lawyer there who's appearing before the case. Scalia was also known uh, for his uh, originalism in terms of how one interprets the Constitution. Do you go back to what the original interpretation of, of the Founding Fathers was, or is it a living uh, Constitution that flexes with, with time and, 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 and uh, periods? What was this? Uh, this was a triumph uh, for that, that approach, wasn't it? Well, right after the case was decided, District of Columbia against Heller, people said it was a triumph of originalism. It was sort of the crowning achievement in Justice Scalia's decades-long effort to fight against living constitutionalism and, and install originalism as the primary method of constitutional interpretation. Um, but I think it was much more complex than that actually because while Scalia did look at history to find that the Second Amendment protected a right of individuals to have guns, uh, in other parts of the opinion, when looking at really what kinds of laws will survive Second Amendment scrutiny, really where the rubber hits the road in constitutional analysis, what laws are allowed, what laws are not allowed, there he departs radically from originalism and says that nothing in the opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding bans on felons having guns, nothing should cast doubt on bans on guns in sensitive places or commercial restrictions on the sale of arms. But these kinds of things are 20th century developments. Mm -hmm. the founding fathers had gun control, but they didn't have any gun control just like these kinds of gun laws. When regulation of the 20th century shapes the nature of a constitutional right, that's not originalism. That's living constitutionalism. And so one of the ultimate ironies of the Heller case is that this triumph of originalism very much embodies a living constitutionalism. And, and the irony is that even though uh, the dissenting Justice Stevens, I believe it was, when he gave his argument, indicated that he was dealing with the Constitution from the original interpretation, yet they both ended up with totally different conclusions. There was um, a speech that Justice Scalia gave at Harvard Law School a few months after the Heller decision. And he was talking about how Heller shows how what a good theory originalism is and how easy it is. And it takes the judgment out of judging. You don't have to – the judge doesn't have to uh, judge by his personal biases. You can just look at the history and the history – what could be easier, he says. He seems to have forgotten that Justice Stevens – also looked at the original history and came to a completely different conclusion about the nature of the Second Amendment right. So what is the immediate impact of the Heller case? I think the immediate significance of the Heller case is really to require every gun law to satisfy the demands of the Second Amendment in court. Um, there have been over 300 federal court decisions on the constitutionality of gun control mm -hmm. since Heller in 2008. But almost every law has been upheld. Um, no one knows how expansive the right to bear arms will be in time, but I think most likely only outlier or silly and ineffective laws are going to be struck down. But in the long run, I'm hopeful that Heller could have a positive effect on the gun debate more generally because it takes civilian disarmament off the table. The threat of disarmament, uh, the fear or the hope for it uh, has really pushed the gun control and gun rights extremists to even more extreme ends. I think by protecting the basic right to bear arms while still giving ample room for good and effective gun control laws, Heller really embodies a middle road in the gun debate and hopefully uh, can call the contending sides of the issue together in the long run. Mm -hmm. 
We think that gun control is a modern 20th century invention, a kind of reflection of great society ideas that big government can solve all our problems. But the thing that I found in writing Gunfight was that we've always had gun control in America, that the story of guns in America is not just about the Second Amendment and the Minutemen, but it's also about restrictive laws designed to enhance public safety. And what I hope people get out of Gunfight is not only a set of fascinating stories about America's hidden history with guns, but also come to understand that we can so move beyond Adam the extremes in the gun debate and embrace an individual's right to have guns while at the same time recognizing the the right legitimate room for America. effective gun control. Thank you, Adam, for allowing us to go Between the Lines with you today. Thank you. Between the Lines is brought to you in part by Jack Mott Hospitality and a generous anonymous supporter. We thank you. To learn more about the books and authors featured on Between the Lines, go to our website at wabe.org slash btl and listen to an archived program or check out our suggested reading list for both children and adults to subscribe to a podcast of the program go to our website and click on podcast be sure to join us next week for another engaging program because there's always more to learn when you go between the lines the executive producer of this program is lois reitzes producer marjorie lancer Editor and technical producer, Mike Johns. Opening and closing music by Afro Blue. And I'm your host, Valerie Jackson. Between the Lines is a production of 90.1 WABE.